Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I also have some good stuff in a blog that I started writing in, I don't know, about two and a half years ago. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. Okay, today is August 17th, 2021, and I want to pick up where we left off in the last episode in analyzing the NCAA's evaluation of its responsibilities and its authorities and its newly found attempt to align those two components of NCAA governance and the business model through this constitutional committee. And I'm going to focus in this episode on the authority side of that equation, specifically in the context of enforcement and infractions. And that's really what the Constitutional Committee is talking about when they're talking about this alignment issue. But before I get into how the NCAA has tried to expand its authorities, and it has substantial authorities, and those are related to the limited responsibilities it has, particularly in the context of enforcement and infractions and its freedom from due process requirements. And that's the product of the Tarkanian Supreme Court decision in 1988. But before I get into that, I just want to talk a little bit about a responsibility that is outside of the context of academic misconduct or responding to gender equity issues and sexual violence and interpersonal violence and criminal behavior at the institutional level. And that is the NCAA's professed commitment to health and safety in college sports and its historic refusal to actually enforce the suggestions and recommendations that it has offered. And that really falls into two categories, actually three, I should say. One, the heat-related injuries and deaths in college football primarily. Second, you have the concussion issue and the protocols that schools are supposed to be following. The NCAA has recommendations on that. And then the third relates to COVID issues and the appropriate COVID protocols. In all of those areas, the NCAA splashes around and makes a bunch of noise and has these committees and has these task forces and these advisory boards that put together recommendations, but the NCAA doesn't enforce them. And that was a huge issue in these congressional hearings among the Democrats who were pushing back against the NCAA's quest for the Iron Throne post-COVID. And that really was in the Senate primarily. And you had the athletes' rights advocates like Richard Blumenthal and Cory Booker and Chris Murphy and the other people who were instrumental in putting together the Athletes' Bill of Rights saying, wait a minute, we just are focused on the wrong issues here. And if you're going to come in and ask for all these federal protections and immunities that go to preserving the status quo in your business model, we have to talk about health and safety. And the Athletes' Bill of Rights puts together a comprehensive program completely outside of NCAA decision-making that requires the implementation of sound, best practices, health and safety issues, and then the enforcement capability of a national body completely independent of the NCAA to bring the hammer down on schools that don't follow the protocols. And I didn't give that any attention in my last episode because this constitutional committee was formed and I think conceptualized in the context of the NCAA's inability to deal with gender equity issues and then gender-related issues in the sexual assault, interpersonal relationship, criminal conduct context in the Baylor case. So the issue of the day is not really health and safety, but that is really, really important. And I did not mean to de-emphasize that by not talking about it in the last episode, but that's not really the context we're talking about now. And when I get into the 
COVID era in the perfect storm and the fall football decisions and the NCAA's advisory panel on COVID-related issues, I'm going to do a deep dive into the health and safety component of the NCAA's refusal to enforce its own recommendations, and that's really important. And I think that's an area where the NCAA could properly exercise enforcement jurisdiction. And I think, as with all the other principles that the NCAA propagandizes in its constitution that it refuses to enforce. It's refusal to enforce the health and safety recommendations that it has issued and its policy statements and its position statements and all of those things really shines a bright light on how the NCAA prioritizes its principles through its enforcement decisions. And that's a good segue into what I want to talk about here to set the table for the NCAA's authorities. And that is really how the enforcement and infractions process operates in practice and how resistant it has been to any reform suggestions that require it to operate in a fair, open, and and accountable way. So I want to talk a little bit about how the enforcement and infractions process is structured. And then I want to look at it through the lens of the Commission on College Basketball report. And I mentioned that in the last episode. But the Commission on College Basketball issued some very specific recommendations to make the NCAA's enforcement and infractions process more accountable, more independent, because of the fundamental conflicts of interest that exist in the current structure, and theoretically, at least, more effective. So the NCAA enforcement and infractions process has three essential components. And the first runs through the enforcement staff, and that is a group of NCAA national office employees that field, at the first instance, allegations of violations of NCAA regulations, and they rely on anonymous sourcing, they rely on confidential informants, they rely on rumor, innuendo, speculation, and gossip. And a lot of that stuff comes from in-system stakeholders who are laying awake at night worrying whether some competitor institution or conference is getting a competitive advantage uh, somehow. And so much of the NCAA regulations are built around the battle for competitive advantage or you know avoiding losing a competitive advantage in the talent acquisition market. And when you look at the existing NCAA legislation, the areas that it chooses to legislate and enforce, you're looking at just a mountain of Mickey Mouse, Picayune rules that have virtually nothing to do with any of the lofty principles contained in the NCAA Constitution. So much of this squabbling relates to recruiting. That's where the NCAA puts all of its energy in its enforcement and infractions process. And the legislation, NCAA legislation authorizing the use of the enforcement and infractions authority relates to those kinds of issues. And all of those go to regulating competitive advantage, disadvantage, and controlling the labor force and fixing the price of labor at the value of an athletic scholarship. That's it. (laughs) That is the sole purpose of the NCAA enforcement and infractions process. But you have this enforcement staff that operates completely in the dark. There is zero accountability. There are no due process requirements. They can take in whatever information they want from whoever they want and then use that as the basis to initiate an investigation. And if they find that uh, there's information there that might lead to a a finding that the uh, subject of the investigation violated NCAA rules, then it goes into the formal notice of allegations and then you have uh, the Committee on Infractions looking at it and there's some process there. But because of the Tarkanian decision, the enforcement staff and the Committee on Infractions don't have to follow federal due process requirements. And the Committee on Infractions is comprised largely of NCAA insiders, and NCAA rules require that. 
in terms of defining the composition of these panels. And there is an appeals process, but again, it runs through NCAA insiders. So from beginning to end, you have an opaque process of limited due process running through a system where the decision makers are NCAA institutional insiders who are operating from profound and I would say disqualifying conflicts of interest. And that brings me right to this Commission on College Basketball report. I want to talk about how the report describes the infractions and enforcement process and then what recommendations it makes to avoid some of these obvious shortcomings in the process. And again, I want to emphasize that in the commission's work, the shortcomings in the enforcement and infractions process was one of the key components of the report's recommendations. So in its recommendations, section number two, the report says, establish professional neutral investigation and adjudication of serious infractions and hold institutions and individuals accountable. And there are two basic components of that. One is to implement an independent investigations and adjudication of complex cases. And then the other main component under that broad heading is beefing up the penalty structure. So let's look at this first one because because that's really where the rubber meets the road here in terms of the integrity of the process. So the very first sentence of that section reads, the commission recommends a prompt radical transformation of the NCAA's investigative and enforcement process for cases involving complex or serious violations. The report goes on to say, the consensus view, including within the NCAA, is that the NCAA investigative and enforcement process is broken. The NCAA's shared governance and cooperative principles do not work in situations where large sums of money and serious reputational damage is at stake. Schools and officials lawyer up to protect their financial and reputational interests. The current NCAA system does not provide its personnel with the tools and authority necessary to investigate complex cases and effectively prosecute violators of the rules. Decision makers are volunteers and NCAA members. They face perceived conflicts of interest in adjudicating complex cases with adverse consequences for the credibility of the process. Punishment is often unpredictable and inadequate to deter violations. In many cases, the process takes years, and the NCAA imposes punishments long after the departure of bad actors. Prominent coaches and administrators escape accountability for what they knew or should have known was occurring in their programs. A significant institutional overhaul is required. Now, that's pretty strong language to set the table for the commission's recommendations on enforcement and infractions. And I also want to say that this was pitched as a quote-unquote independent commission, but all of the members were selected by NCAA insiders, by Mark Emmert and the Division I Board of Directors, and I'm not sure what input the Board of Governors had. But this was not uh, truly independent, and all the people on the commission, with the exception of Dr. Rice, and there were a couple of others who appeared to have some uh, objectivity, but a lot of these people were NCAA insiders. And when you read the report, it's about a 55-page report, and I have my dog-eared copy of it here. It's all highlighted. Uh, been back to this time and time again. But when you look at the information that the commission relied upon and the briefings that they got, because there's some complicated issues here in So they had briefings from outside experts, but most of those briefings were from NCAA lawyers, outside lawyers on the NCAA payroll. And the way that these issues were framed in large part ran through that filter. So one of the ironies of the commission's recommendations for independence in the enforcement and infractions process is that the information that the commission relied upon came from sources that really weren't truly independent. And then the other thing that's relevant to the commission's work and its recommendations is that they really weren't suggesting and recommending anything that uh, was new. All of these weaknesses in the NCAA enforcement and infractions process have been on the table and obvious to people who are paying attention for decades. 
and have been the source, as I said in my last episode, of congressional hearings and external reports and commissions and books. And actually, some of the recommendations in the Commission on College Basketball report align pretty closely with recommendations in a 2017 book called Unwinding Madness, where three academically oriented commentators talked about some of the absurdities in the big-time college sports business model. And as a lot of these books do, they had a section at the end on recommendations. And a lot of the recommendations that related to institutional accountability, and that ties into the NCAA infractions and enforcement process, really are similar to what you see in the Commission on College Basketball as it relates to fundamentally overhauling the enforcement and infractions process. But even within those limitations and the lack of true independence in the commission's work, you had some really powerful statements here, and the recommendations are substantial because they require a complete overhaul of the infractions and enforcement process. And I guess I should also say that the commission was put on a very tight deadline. The NCAA, the national office, and the NCAA decision makers decided the scope of the commission's work and the timetable. And the commission was formed in October of 2017, and the NCAA required a response by April of 2018, and the report was released in late April. So, you know, you had a pretty short time frame here to address some really big issues. And again, that timeline, I think, wasn't really adequate for the commission to address the complexity of some of these issues. But I want to just go now into the specific recommendations with respect to creating independence. So the two themes that come out of that initial framing of the enforcement and infractions process are what tools does the NCAA have? And the other is... How can we implement a process that is truly independent and eliminates all these built-in conflicts of interest that the entire NCAA governance structure is built around? And in talking about those two features of enforcement and infractions, it's really important to understand that the commission recommended some beefed-up enforcement tools like this importation rule that I'm going to talk about in just a minute, but in the context of their use by truly independent decision makers. The way that these recommendations are structured, they assume that any beefed up enforcement capabilities and enforcement tools that the NCAA has at its disposal are only appropriate where they are used by people who are free from all the conflicts that were in the old process. I just want to keep that front and center as we're walking through these specific recommendations. So the commission says first, it recommends that the NCAA establish two tracks for addressing rules violations, one track for complex cases and a second for all others. The current NCAA process would remain in effect for the second category, and that is the non-complex cases, the simple cases. But the NCAA must create an entirely new process for investigating and deciding complex cases. Most significantly, the commission recommends that the Committee on Infractions appoint a panel of paid independent decision makers such as lawyers, arbitrators, and retired judges. These decision makers would form a pool from which three adjudicators could be randomly selected to resolve each complex case. And then talks a little bit more about the procedures available to them. And then the commission says, as a further layer of independence and integrity and external oversight, the commission recommends that the NCAA ensure professional investigation and prosecution of serious violations. So instead of using volunteers and NCAA insiders, these were going to be paid professionals who had an arm's length relationship. And the recommendations say there are at least two ways to do so. After its appointment, the independent adjudication panel could create a panel of outside counsel, not, and they put in print, not the NCAA's usual counsel who would be in a conflict of interest. But it was those very lawyers, the NCAA's usual counsel, that informed the work of the 
Commission on College Basketball because those are the only outside legal experts that the commission heard from. So you just, again, you just can't make this up. But they want to use outside counsel to investigate complex cases. In the alternative, the report says, the NCAA could establish a separate investigation and advocacy office with rules guaranteeing its independence. Again, this is all about independence. And then the next thing that the commission talks about, and this is so important because I think what the commission was saying is that when you look at the body of cases where the NCAA has exercised its enforcement and infractions jurisdiction and adjudicated claimed rules violations, that they've spent a lot of time on Mickey Mouse BS and that that has been their bread and butter. So the commission says that it recommends that the newly formed investigative office or appointed law firm and indeed all relevant NCAA investigative bodies be instructed to exercise appropriate enforcement discretion and common sense. That is to set appropriate priorities for enforcement to make reasonable decisions about punishment and not to expend excessive resources on violations that are de minimis. This investigative entity should give serious infractions substantial attention and seek punishments that will deter future violations. But it should also recognize that certain kinds of minor violations should be handled differently, both in terms of resources expended and punishment recommended. In the exercise of such discretion, self-reporting and other indicia of cooperation should be considered. And that is a really important component of the reports recommendations because it is telling the NCAA basically that it has its priorities upside down and inside out and that they are burning resources on Mickey Mouse issues and diverting resources and attention from far more serious issues that need independent adjudication. And I'm going to talk a little bit more in a minute about how the NCAA implemented some of these recommendations. But before I go on with the recommendations, I just want to point out that this Baylor case was a complex case. And after the Committee on Infractions that decided the Baylor case was put together, the chair of that committee, of that panel, recommended and sent for referral the Baylor case to this new Independent Accountability Resolution process recommended by the commission designed to deal with complex cases. And under the rules for the independent accountability resolution process, there is an infractions referral committee designed to field these very requests. And guess what? They declined to take the case. And you have to ask yourself why. And when you look at the oversight for this independent accountability resolution process, they have an oversight committee and then they have this referral committee. Those two committees are made up of NCAA insiders. So they're deciding whether the independent process is even going to be invoked. And in this Baylor case, they took it outside of the independent review process. And I, I'll talk more about that when I get into the Baylor case. But that's just shocking to me because this is the case that the new process was specifically designed to deal with. And the NCAA insiders in that oversight and referral process said, we're not taking this case. We're going to keep it under the old bad system. Then the commission goes into some suggestions on how the NCAA could beef up its enforcement capabilities. And it talks about this principle of cooperation and self-reporting that, according to the commission, had proven to be insufficient. So it says the NCAA also must adopt rules that require member institutions and their personnel to cooperate with NCAA investigations with a failure to respond to investigators' requests promptly bearing significant consequences, including loss of postseason eligibility and revenue. And then it talks about the fact that the NCAA doesn't have subpoena power but it can adopt as a condition of membership that member institutions enter into contractual agreements to cooperate in investigations and that member institutions contractually impose the same requirement of cooperation on presidents, administrators, and coaches. NCAA rules should specifically protect whistleblowers who report and provide 
evidence of violations. And those are general suggestions to beef up the authorities of the NCAA. And the report talks about subpoena power. And we're going to talk about that in a little more detail in a minute, because that's one of the things that NCAA has always sought. And that's bad news. <laughs> you know, if we can't trust the NCAA, not to engage in all this self-dealing and this, these misplaced priorities. We're going to give them subpoena power? Really? No, that's not where we want to be going. So then the report pivots a little bit away from these broader tactics to try to get in-system stakeholders to comply with their obligations. And then it talks really about some of the additional authorities that the independent panel of adjudicators need. To, to do their work. So the report says, relatedly, the independent panel of adjudicators must have the authority to impose consequences for failure to cooperate, including, where appropriate, loss of the right to participate in postseason tournaments and other NCAA events and the loss of associated revenues. In a related point, the NCAA must authorize its investigators and advocates to submit and rely on the evidence admitted in judicial and administrative tribunals and the decisions of those tribunals. There is no reason to require the NCAA to redo the work of other tribunals. The independent panel of adjudicators can determine the reliability of the evidence and the preclusive effect of other decisions. So that's an important power, and that's called the importation power. That is now in NCAA infractions and enforcement rules. It gives the NCAA the authority to basically rely on any external body it chooses uh, to rely on that has any indicia of reliability, in their view, to simply import wholesale the factual findings of that body. And the commission is saying that's okay so long as we leave the assessment of the reliability of the evidence to the independent panel of adjudicators. And whether or not the conclusions of other bodies and tribunals based on that evidence should have preclusive effect in the NCAA enforcement and infractions process at issue. And what's important about that is that the NCAA wasn't trusting the old process to make those judgments about the reliability of the evidence and any potential preclusive effect. They wanted that to reside with these truly independent professional decision makers who were farther removed from all of the corruption in the old system. And that's so important because in this decision that the NCAA made just a few weeks ago, it appears that the NCAA is forcing the independent accountability resolution decision makers under this new process to rely on the evidence and some conclusions from that evidence gathered and assessed by the enforcement staff. And the very purpose of the independent resolution process is to prevent the inherent conflicts and the unreliability of the evidence that that very enforcement staff has traditionally relied upon. So that is a huge issue, and it got virtually no coverage. I think I'm going to address that as a standalone episode because I think that is a telegraph of how some of these issues between the powerful football interests and the NCAA are being managed and resolved behind closed doors. But there was never any intent on the part of the commission to have a process where this old corrupt process built around conflicts of interest and on KGB-like tactics among the enforcement staff could be willy-nilly incorporating information and findings from other tribunals and giving those people the authority to assess the credibility and reliability of the evidence. That's just not what the commission intended. And that is the practical effect because the NCAA has retained its importation rules. And the way that the NCAA has structured its legislation on its infractions program, these importation rules and some other rules and powers that the commission didn't address at all are brought into the old system, into the bad system. They are not 
limited to use by the independent accountability resolution decision makers. And that's really important. So I just want to talk a little bit about what the NCAA rules say about importation and a few other things that they throw in there. And this is, again, in uh, Bylaw 19, and it's 30 pages, and it's written by lawyers, for lawyers. It's complicated. And like many other parts of the NCAA Division One manual, it is tough to comprehend. You know, and I've mentioned this several times before. Condoleezza Rice, who was chair of this commission on college basketball, after the report was released, she made some comments to USA Today, and this was in the context of the name, image, and likeness rules. But she said they're incomprehensible. The same can be said of a lot of the NCAA manual. And again, since the NCAA really isn't held responsible for this because of Tarkanian, I don't think the NCAA really gives a damn about uh, potential liability for its process. So let's see, this importation rule stuck in an interesting place. It's under a heading 19.7.8 on post-hearing committee deliberations. And under a subsection on the basis of the decision, it says under that basis of decision section, the hearing panel shall base its decision on information presented to it that it determines to be credible, persuasive, and of a kind on which reasonably prudent people rely in the conduct of serious affairs. The information upon which the panel bases its decision may be information that directly or circumstantially supports the alleged violation. So it's important to, to note that that applies to the old system. I guess it theoretically applies to the complex case system. But under this change that occurred a couple of weeks ago, the independent resolution process decision makers are required to accept the finding of facts from this enforcement staff. And they can't second guess them. The importation issue is a fact-finding issue. So this, this is really relating to the facts that are brought to the hearing panel, not necessarily found by the panel. So the uh, subsection under basis of decision on importation of facts says, facts established by a decision or judgment of a court agency, accrediting body, or other blah, 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 basically can be admitted into evidence and accepted as true in the infractions process, in concluding whether an institution or individual violated NCAA rules. And it says evidence submitted and positions taken in such a matter may be considered in the infractions process. Then it adds three things that the commission didn't address at all. And these are really powerful tools that really shouldn't be available to the NCAA because you have to remember that the entire infractions and enforcement process is in the nature of a criminal proceeding. It is designed to punish and deter. That's the purpose of criminal law. This is not a civil dispute. And, and the rules of evidence are much different on some important matters in criminal cases versus civil cases. So after this importation of facts, the NCAA says the hearing panel may infer that materials requested during an investigation by the enforcement staff, but not produced by an institution or individual, would support an alleged violation for which the party may be subject to penalty. So if you can't come up with the documents for any reason, there is an operative legal presumption that those documents would have supported your culpability. Then they do that about refusal to participate in interviews. And it says the hearing panel may view the failure or refusal to participate in an interview requested by the enforcement staff as an admission that an alleged violation occurred. And then the third thing that they throw in there is that the hearing panel may view the failure by an institution or individual to submit a timely response to a notice of allegations as an admission that an alleged violation occurred. So the way that the NCAA interpreted the recommendations of the Commission on College Basketball is entirely self-serving, which is simply the way the NCAA rolls. It technically adopted, at least for public relations purposes, this independent resolution process that the commission recommended, but it delayed its implementation. In fact, it wasn't really implemented until 2019 because there were some things they had to do to get the staffing up to snuff. And the first complex case that was referred to the independent resolution process 
Didn't happen until March of 2020. So this thing hasn't even had a chance. And in March of 2020 was the beginning of COVID when a lot of the NCAA's administrative processes, including some of its infractions work, was put on hold. And the NCAA is now pulling the plug on it. And the justification for pulling the plug on the independence built into the independent resolution process is that it's taking too long. It's too cumbersome. And we're not getting any results. And that is in the face of a ruling in the Baylor case under the old system that goes back to conduct that occurred in 2010 and an investigation that has taken five years with some massive gaps in the tape that aren't explained in the timeline in the Committee on Infractions decision, public decision on the Baylor case. It doesn't make sense. So now I want to turn to this issue of expanded authorities, because I think that's what Robert Gates was talking about and Mark Emmett was talking about and this tension between responsibilities and authorities and aligning the two. They don't want to acknowledge the limited responsibilities they actually have, but I think they're doing that tacitly. But what they aren't saying is the extent to which they have gone in very underhanded ways and sneaky ways to try to beef up the authorities in this enforcement and infractions process that operates like a star chamber. And there is no way to defend the existing infractions and enforcement process. And that's exactly what the Commission on College Basketball said at the very beginning of its discussion about this independent resolution process. They said, the system's broken and it needs to be fixed immediately. And everybody agrees, including NCAA insiders. But now we're back to the same process. So what is it that the NCAA really wants? And there are two windows into that, I think. And the commission talked about this subpoena power issue. And the NCAA has resurrected that time and time again. And when they go before Congress or if they're hauled before Congress after some scandal, they say, well, we just don't have the tools. We don't have the powers of law enforcement. And we need the powers of law enforcement. And when you hear that, man, grab your constitution and grab your common sense and grab your dignity and run like hell. Because giving the NCAA police power and giving it subpoena power and giving it the ability to compel testimony from witnesses in this indefensible infractions and enforcement process is like putting a recidivist pyromaniac in charge of fire safety. And this next thing is just going to fall into the category of you can't make this stuff up because while the Commission on College Basketball was doing its work and as these criminal cases coming out of the Southern District of New York and this basketball scandal, alleged basketball scandal, were playing out, the NCAA was working double time to get access to the information that the federal investigative process through the FBI and then through the prosecution of these cases through the U.S. attorneys. And so was trying to get access to all that information. We don't know the extent to which some of that information may have voluntarily been shared. And I have my suspicions and I'll talk about that, I think, in a, at another time in a separate episode. But the, some of the comments that Mark Emmert made early in this case when the Southern District of New York decided to move forward with prosecutions and they had this big public announcement and it was one of these big press conference deals with charts and bold statements and all that. You have to wonder how much information they were getting from the NCAA and the extent to which the NCAA and the prosecutorial interests were aligned. And there's some interesting themes there that I'm, I'm not going to go into now. But Mark Emmert, in an interview with CBS, a friendly forum, because uh, the NCAA and national office and CBS are joined at the hip through this March Madness contract. And the CBS is a propaganda megaphone for the NCAA. But Mark Emmert explicitly talked about his cooperation and communications with the investigative team and the prosecutorial team. And when I read that, I'm like, what the, f you know, whiskey tango foxtrot. <laughs> That's not supposed to be happening because the NCAA's rules and their conduct, quite frankly, in this enforcement and infractions process was really a component of the case. But while this 
commission. It's under the thumb of the NCAA, this Commission on College Basketball. It's doing its work and talking about making the enforcement and infractions process one that has some basic integrity and has some basic independence. The NCAA is behind closed doors and back-channeling and off-the-record seeking information from those criminal cases that it intended to use to crucify the bad actors, as the NCAA saw it. And there's something here that I talked a little bit about in my blog, and this received zero attention. I did research on this to try to figure out how this happened procedurally, and then also why nobody in the media talked about this, because this was a big story, just one of many that got lost in all the NCAA and uh, big-time college sports interests propaganda around this whole Commission on College Basketball work and the basketball scandal. But the criminal case that got the most attention was against three defendants, Jim Gatto, who was an Adidas representative, Merle Code, who was an assistant coach, and Christian Dawkins, who was an aspiring athlete agent. And I think the basic deal was that uh, these defendants were acquiring basketball talent by paying off parents and then taking that talent and selling it to big-time universities, big-time basketball universities. And then in exchange for all that talent acquisition and bribery, the player, once they, he became a big-time NBA prospect, was going to use this agent. And then somehow the FBI gets involved. We don't really know how that happened. There's some gaps in the tape there. But when you, you just look at how this scheme played out, how it was planned, and then how the feds came in, like this was an existential threat to America's national security, you just came away thinking, what in the world happened here? And why is the federal government wasting a penny looking into this stuff. So I'll do a separate episode on that. That's a really interesting insight into how powerful institutions in America can take a wrong turn and just keep going without any sense that they have lost their way. But this was really a harebrained scheme. This was low-level stuff. They had the white-collar unit uh, investigating this, but this was more tank top than white-collar, in my view. This is kind of a would be a good uh, episode for the Stupid Criminals show on cable TV. And there was actually a documentary uh, that was done on this case and how ridiculous the investigative tactics were and all that stuff. But that case proceeded, and the... Defendants were convicted on wire fraud charges, and that's a very broad federal criminal statute, much like conspiracy laws, and it doesn't take a lot to prove up the case there. And so there was the prosecution, and then there was a delay between the prosecution and the conviction and then the sentencing, as there always is. And in that interim period, the NCAA, who'd been carefully monitoring this case, they had their high-priced lawyers sitting in the trial and taking in all the evidence. And they weren't doing that because they were worried about anything coming back to the NCAA. They were thinking about ways that they could turn this scandal to their advantage. And one of the ways that they were going to do that was to get access to all of the salacious material that was brought in in this discovery process, the criminal discovery process. So the FBI does investigations, and they came in like they were coming after terrorists who were plotting to blow up Washington, D.C. I mean, it was really over the top. But they wiretaps and recorded conversations and surreptitious monitoring of internet activity and confidential informants and planted witnesses and all this stuff, all this drama that looked and sounded cloak and dagger. And you had these defendants and some other people talking in hushed tones and cryptic language and code words. And some of those recordings were played in this documentary. And when you listen to them, it does have that kind of, oh, wow, these guys are really bad guys because they're acting like they're bad guys. But the fact of the matter is they didn't even cross their mind that they could be running afoul of federal criminal laws. That just wasn't even on their radar screen. All of that 
surreptitious communication was designed to avoid NCAA enforcement and infractions officers. <laughs> they, they weren't worried. And they came out and said that. They weren't worried about the United States Justice Department. They were worried about the NCAA. But in the process of this investigation that FBI conducted, they had all of these recorded conversations and text messages and emails and all of these things. And it included some really salacious, uh, bad actor allegations. And it was based primarily on rumor, gossip, speculation, and just bad faith, bad talking and... The NCAA wanted all of that stuff. And the judge in that case, Judge Kaplan, who was actually very deferential to the NCAA's view of the world, and the way he constructed the theory of the case was very deferential to the NCAA because it didn't put the NCAA or the member institutions on trial. In fact, he came up with the victim university theory. That's capital V, capital U. Because in a criminal case, you got to have a victim. And in this case, he said the fraud that these bad actors were engaged in that basically was a violation of NCAA rules was an act of fraud against the universities because if they had known about the fraud and the fact that these kids were ineligible because they were getting money or there was a promise to move some money on their behalf, that they would never have been enrolled. (laughs) I wrote a post devoted exclusively to that because that's a real stretch. But anyway, Judge Kaplan was pretty friendly to the NCAA in that theory of the case. And I think the FBI and the Justice Department and the Southern District of New York were pretty friendly to the NCAA. But Kaplan is a smart, experienced judge, and I've reviewed a lot of the materials from that case and actually some other cases that Kaplan had handled. And it seems to me like he was just a no BS kind of judge when it came to evidentiary issues. And the vast majority of all of this material that was generated by the FBI was excluded at trial because of its very nature. And it was prejudicial. A lot of it was completely irrelevant. It was unreliable. And a lot of it was put under seal. I mean, this this stuff was so bad and so potentially prejudicial to the people that were mentioned in some of those communications that the court didn't want anybody to have access to it because that's not the role of criminal courts to engage in innuendo and speculation and defamation and slander and and all that that was really coming through these communications. But that didn't stop the NCAA from trying to get that information. And just as a threshold matter, the fact that the NCAA even sought that information is a window into its dark soul because you would never in a million years in any process that had any credibility use a piece of that evidence. None of it. So actually it didn't rise to the level of evidence. It was just outright garbage. And the trial concluded in October of 2018, and all three defendants were convicted on the wire fraud charges. I think there were some other charges that they weren't convicted on. And Judge Kaplan set a sentencing hearing for March of 2019, so five months later. A month before that sentencing hearing, the NCAA filed a motion through a letter I couldn't find the actual motion and the brief in support in the docket of this case, of this Gatto case. But I did track down a letter that was sent by the NCAA lawyers, and those lawyers were from Wilmer Hale, this D.C.-based firm, this really high-powered firm that has handled all the appellate proceedings in O'Bannon and Austin. And Wilmer Hale, through Seth Waxman, represented the NCAA in the United States Supreme Court in Austin. But Wilmer Hale sends this letter saying that they want to have access to all this information that was gathered. So in a letter dated February 28, 2019, well, Wilmer Hale lawyer sends a letter to Judge Kaplan and says, we represent the National Collegiate Athletic Association. Per the instruction of the clerk of court, the NCAA respectfully requests that the court direct the clerk to add the NCAA as an intervener, a party to the lawsuit, to the docket in the above uh, captioned case so that the NCAA can electronically file a motion to intervene for the limited purpose of obtaining materials. 
And then by letter to Judge Kaplan, dated March 15th, a couple weeks later, the United States, the prosecution, responds to that initial letter request and says that they intend to oppose any motion to intervene. And obviously, the defendant's lawyers opposed the motion. So you had both the government and the defendants, the prosecution and the defense, agreeing that the NCAA had no business being a a party to this lawsuit as an intervener and having access to the evidence that was excluded, specifically excluded from the trial because it was so bad. And so again, I couldn't find the actual motion and the briefing on the motion in the docket. Maybe it's there somewhere and I missed it, but I couldn't find it and I didn't go to the additional step of trying to go directly to the court rather than the electronic docket. But in the opinion, I have the opinion that Judge Kaplan issued, and that was on September 3rd of 2019. And the ruling really is a slapdown to the NCAA. And the government was saying, you have no business as a private actor to be uh, butting into a, a criminal case and demanding evidence. There was a sense of who the hell do you think you are coming in and thinking that you can get this stuff for any purpose. And the judge gave the motion a fair consideration, and that's what a good judge does, and he's a good judge. But he talked about the documents that were at issue, and they fell into three different categories, really. And so this is how the judge summarized that evidence. He said, the documents requested by the NCAA fall into the following categories of materials. One, those offered into evidence but excluded by the court at trial. Two, those used to refresh a witness's recollection. Or three, those discussed on the record but never moved into evidence. These documents consist of transcripts of wiretapped calls, text messages, emails, correspondence, financial records, and a document memorializing a witness's prior statements to the FBI. None of the documents were admitted into evidence at trial. None. And then the court goes through the appropriate test for determining whether a third party can get access to cases in a criminal prosecution. And they look really at the interests of the people who would be affected by those disclosures. And an essential component of that analysis is the reliability of the evidence. The court made a very important observation at the very beginning of the analysis, and it says, at bottom, the requested materials all share the common feature of implicating individuals other than the defendants in potential NCAA rule violations. So all of this speculative, rumor-based, defamatory stuff related to people who weren't parties to the criminal case and didn't have the opportunity to challenge that evidence. And again, the fact that the NCAA is even seeking this evidence is proof that it believes that this kind of evidence is entirely appropriate to launch an NCAA investigation and to support a violation of NCAA rules. And it's just shocking, it's just shocking that the NCAA pulled this BS. But then the court goes on to say that, let's see, as previously mentioned, the materials relate to potential rule violations of third parties not on trial in this action, which might be regarded by certain segments of the public as scandalous conduct. Disclosure carries the risk of significant reputational and professional repercussions for those referenced in the documents. And then it says, we agree with the government that the information in these documents consists of hearsay, speculation, and rumor. Furthermore, the individuals referred to in these documents are not standing trial. They will not have the opportunity to test the reliability of the information contained in these materials, nor respond adequately to any inferences that might be drawn on the basis of this information. In other words, the documents are of a sensitive nature and the degree of potential injury is high. And then it's gavel, bang, motion, deny. But what's really important here is that the NCAA had the audacity to come into a federal court and ask for permission to access and use that information. And that alone should be exhibit A 
in any congressional hearing on whether the NCAA should have any additional law enforcement authorities at its disposal. And the NCAA wants the ability to use law enforcement police powers to compel evidence and testimony, no matter how prejudicial, no matter how salacious, no matter how unreliable, no matter how irrelevant, and then use it to swing its hammer in its infractions and enforcement process to bring the bad actors to heel. That doesn't happen in America. It shouldn't happen in America. And the United States Senate can't let that happen in America because that takes me to my next point. The NCAA has been lobbying behind the scenes in the Senate to get some of these extraordinary law enforcement powers. And so that takes me to this Jerry Moran bill. I talked about that a little bit earlier, but I want to get into that a little bit more here in the context of NCAA authorities in the enforcement and infractions context. And this Moran bill, again, is just a train wreck. And I'm going to pick this thing apart when I do a separate episode on it. But let me track it down here. Okay, and then just a reminder on who Jerry Moran is. He is a Republican senator from Kansas, and he held the very first hearings in 2020 on this need for federal intervention that the NCAA was claiming back early in its campaign in the Senate as a precondition to offering any name, image, and likeness compensation. And this hearing really set the foundation for the framework of the NCAA's Iron Throne campaign to get all these federal protections and immunities. And Moran was leading the charge there. He was the chair of a subcommittee of commerce. And, you know, the Commerce Committee in the Senate has original jurisdiction over sports-related matters. And this was a really important hearing because it set the tone. But Moran has been carrying the NCAA's water, and he has been a cheerleader. And he is a dangerous man right now for the athletes because he put together this bill this let's see what this thing is called let me go back and see the amateur athletes protection and compensation act of 2021 and again i'm going to break this thing down in detail i'm only going to describe it enough now to get to this subpoena power that it offers the ncaa but moran's bill has some bells and whistles thrown in that have very little consequence it make it appear as if he is uh, taking seriously some of the concerns that have been raised by the athletes' rights advocates in the Senate and the sponsors of the Athletes' Bill of Rights. But Moran is NCAA right down the line. And unfortunately, I fear Maria Cantwell, the Democrat chair of that Commerce Committee now, is listening to Moran. And Moran has tried to position himself as a voice of moderation and bipartisanship. And that's a problem for athletes because Cantwell is driven in this kind of monomaniacal quest for bipartisan legislation, regardless of what it looks like, whether it does any good. There's bipartisanship for bipartisanship's sake, and that's really a dangerous dynamic right now. But the way that Moran put this thing together, he has a federal corporation, a government corporation, which is a particular type of governmental entity that's kind of shadowy because it doesn't really have a lot of oversight. And it has some of the features of a private corporation and some of the features of a government uh, entity. And so it can have components of both. Moran has a government corporation in charge of regulating name, image, and likeness issues at the federal level. And in bills like these where there's delegation out to some other decision-making authority, you really have to parse the details here. And when you look at who is required to hold the seats on the board of directors for this government corporation, it's very clear that a substantial majority of those seats go to Big-time college sports insiders, NCAA insiders, institutional insiders, conference insiders. This is an inside job. And one of the powers that this federal corporation has, and I'm just going to read this, and this is in this context of setting the authority of this government corporation. And this is something that's not going to get a whole lot of attention when you read through the bill, but this is big. It says subpoena power. The commission, the corporation, 
shall have subpoena power and shall adopt rules that will result in the corporation in response to appropriate requests issuing subpoenas ducis tecum and ad testificandum and compelling deposition testimony at the request of a national amateur athletic association. And in the definition section, and I've talked before about how important the definition section is because so much of the scope and coverage of these laws is determined uh, in the definition section. And in Moran's bill, a National Amateur Athletic Association explicitly includes the NCAA. So imagine what this is going to look like on the backside with a government corporation that is controlled by NCAA conference institutional insiders that has the authority to accept requests from a National Amateur Athletic Association to serve subpoenas for documents and then subpoenas for testimony so they can compel people to appear before that corporation to provide testimony and looking at the kind of evidence that the NCAA is willing to rely on to base an enforce, enforcement and infractions investigation on, that's a frightening proposition because they don't care about the quality of the evidence or the reliability of the evidence or whether it is verifiable or not. They're happy to deal in rumor and speculation and gossip and innuendo. That's their stock and trade. That's how the, their enforcement and infractions process has worked for decades. So in this discussion about the alignment between responsibilities and authorities in the context of enforcement and infractions, the authorities side is a real problem. And I said in my last episode, it's not clear where the NCAA is going with this. And again, that will reveal itself as we learn more about this committee's work. But if we start hearing conversation about enhanced authorities, that's going to be a big red flag. And I hope, I can only hope, that if that is the case, that the United States Senate and the Commerce Committee will take note of that because that has to be on the table. And it should be on the table already if uh, these senators are paying attention to what's in this Moran bill because that is a bad, bad bill. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and wrap this episode up. And then in the next episode, I'm going to talk specifically about this Baylor decision and kind of walk through it and look at some clever ways that it characterizes its work, its, its task in investigating this misconduct at Baylor. And then some of the uh, important themes that come out of that that are relevant going forward. And the way that the Committee on Infractions tried to bring this bad actor behavior into the existing NCAA regulatory legislative process it really just points out the absurdity of the NCAA's inability and historic refusal to have a process that would allow it to address these big picture issues that are propagandized in its constitution, but its enforcement and infractions process can't really touch because of the lack of underlying authorizing legislation. That's an NCAA issue. The NCAA owns that. And they can't be pointing the finger at other people in this analysis of the alignment between responsibilities and authorities. So, all right. Well, thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.